I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Joining me today is Joseph Foster, the entrepreneur who describes himself simply as the shoemaker. It's also the title of his new book, which focuses on his role as the co-founder of Reebok. And Reebok is a brand that two brothers started with a brilliant idea and turned it into a billion dollar sportswear legend and global icon. Joe, a very warm welcome to Changemakers. Well, it's great to be here, Michael, and thank you for the invitation. Oh, so, well, uh, what, a, what a story. I mean, from, from the back streets of Bolton to a billion-dollar business, Reebok. Now, I was reading that Reebok is a small gazelle, but, but this feels like one giant leap of a story. Let's talk a little bit about Reebok, about the business that, I, I guess, transformed your life and in, in many ways has transformed the lives of a great many people around the world. I mean, a family business, but... There was a book, wasn't there, in America's Webster's Dictionary um, that you were given as a prize that may well have a lot to answer for. Well, yes, indeed. Really, we're talking about a family business. J.W. Foster and Sons started with my grandfather back in 1895. He had an illustrious career, but only small. The factory was small. Supplied many Olympic athletes and many world record holders. He died in 1933, and his sons took on the business. Jeff and myself, my brother, we actually joined the business uh, when Jeff was 14, I was 17, and I joined in 1953, I think it is, no, 52. By 1953, both Jeff and I had to do national service. So doing national service took us away from the family, the business, and whatever, and Jeff was in Germany, he saw Adidas, he saw Puma, we we come back and we're looking at a a failing company. My grandfather started as an entrepreneur and a brilliant person in terms of influencing. His sons, unfortunately, didn't seem to carry that same DNA. But maybe it dropped on Jeff and myself because we couldn't convince them. In fact, my father and uncle, they were at war with each other. <clears throat> grandfather died, they'd inherited. Grandmother kept them together. Once grandmother died, they just drifted apart. Mm. And, and that was sad because it did no good for the business. Very <laughs> similar to the Puma and Adidas story, of course, in terms of conflict at the heart of the story. Very similar, although uh, Rudy Dassler did leave <laughs> and set up Puma. Whereas uh, uh, father and uncle... Either either they couldn't get away from it, or I don't know. They maybe had no spirit to do that. You know, they they'd been through two world wars. Maybe they'd lost the energy to do something different. But they didn't see the need or have the will to build a business. And of course, you know, when Jeff and I come back and we're looking at this and we're talking to Father, and he said, "Look, look, look, look. When I'm gone, your uncle's gone. This business will be yours." And you know. My response to that was, I'm sorry, this business will be gone long before you are gone and we don't want you gone anyway. And, so, you, so you were a young man in a hurry at that point. Well, I think we saw the urgency of there's no business left. Mm. I, I think we saw if this is our future. It's not going to last very long, if at all. This business is going down, 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 and there'll be nothing to save. By, by the time we get round to that point, there'll be nothing to save. So it was 1958. Jeff and I had decided that we would go to college, so we went to shoe college, and that was important for me. I think it was important for both because what we, what we did, it's not just how to make or make shoes. We, what we knew was on the factory floor, which would make his spike running shoes, football boots, rugby boots, you name it. But, you know, the general sort of shoe business, we, we didn't know anything about. So what, what we did pick up, though, were a lot of friends, you know, a lot of people, people who could help us. And this was so important when we did leave. Where did we get this machine from? Where did we get that? Where did we get these materials from? And we were able to get that. So those 
associations we, we developed through mm. Rossnell College were tremendous. But but I read the, the story and the early days, I think a lot of entrepreneurs in startup mode would recognize, you know, you slept <laughs> with the equipment, you had, you know, you had to you had to make ends meet. And then all of a sudden you're faced with a global phenomenon, which as I understood it involved not only the business processes, but this complete act of serendipity of going through a dictionary and coming across the word, oh, just flicking the way through. And there is Reebok just staring out at you. Mm. Did you get a sense that that name would have such influence on what might happen next? Not really. I mean, we started our business, we left in 58, we started the business as Mercury Sports Footwear. Mm. And it was 18 months into the business when our accountant suggested that we register the name. We we looked and we tested this with an an agent and found out it was pre-registered. So the agent said, okay, we were offered the the name for £1,000. But we'd set up a factory for £250. Where would we get £1,000 from? We couldn't. So I was in his office and he pointed through the window to a name, Kodak. And I said, what's with Kodak? He said, it's made up. Okay, so it's your name, you know. But he said, you have to bring me a new name. Bring Bring me 10, at least 10 names. I'm, I'm stunned. Ten names? Well, you know, we, we've got to be in love with this. It's our passion. It's, you know, our ten names. Well, he said, we've got to test these through the register. So we're back and we're talking around the table. Cougar, that's a good name. Falcon, yeah, another good name. And we went on and on and on. But I had, as you say, this dictionary. Uh, I, it was 1943. That's during the war. And I won a race. 60 yards. I had an advantage. I had a pair of Foster spikes on <laughs> Not many people wore spiked, in those days. but I, I won the race and went up to collect my prize. And they gave me a dictionary. And I'm saying, Where's the football? You know, what's this? A dictionary, and it's an American dictionary, a Webster's American dictionary. Yeah, and some of those spellings are not the same spellings that be you'd be expected to use <clears throat> over here in, in the UK. Oh, well. Um, so I fast forward now to 1960, my dictionary is sitting there, and I like the letter R. So I open my dictionary at R and start thumbing through. Hardly B O K came up. Small South African gazelle. Gazelle, we're a running company. That's it. Leaping. Oh, gotta have that. And I took this man to the agent, and he, he went through all 10 of the names, and he came back and said, well, Reebok is the only one that really we can say is clear that you could actually mm. register and have no fear about but you know when they, you know, they, they often ask question, "What's in the name?" I mean, I mean, Nike was almost called Blue Ribbon Sports originally. You were almost Mercury in terms of how important, I guess, the brand was. I mean, we'll get to the performance and we'll get to everything else. But in terms of the luck of the name, a name that seemed to catch on and 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 transform things, how important did it become to you? Well, of course, we didn't know at the time that it would be a masterstroke, <laughs> but. You know, when you when you find a name, I mean, what what are the chances of finding a name in a dictionary like that? You know, it's a it it is a chance. So yeah, maybe maybe this is fate. Fate that I would be given a dictionary instead of a football mm-hmm. when I'm a kid of eight years old, and then I would look through that and find Reebok, two syllables, easy to say, and it also is a gazelle. It's, you know, it's like a fate that you you wouldn't really expect you know something out of the blue well i mean under your your and your brother's leadership i mean you you obviously developed a flair for the identity of your business as you went on i mean obviously prior to your sale to to adidas you were very much at the heart of quite literally flying the flag the early the early global britain jerry in terms of the brand look and feel but actually creating a very strong sense of identity with with reebok is is that a fair 
Is that a fair summary of the strategy? Is that what you were trying to do, do you think? Well, I think what I was trying to do was to get our brand into America. I needed to get a brand. I needed to go somewhere where we could have volume, where we could grow, because, you know, we could only grow so, so much in the UK, and, and especially in athletics. Athletics was track and field in those early days. When Jeff and I left the company, left the Foster's company, Adidas were already in the UK. Adidas already had football. Mm-hmm. So for us to get into football, the strategy would have been great, get to football, but we couldn't afford that. That, that would have been a big game to get into. So we went somewhere where we knew we could get into. We knew we could enter athletics and running. So we, we got into that. But really, <clears throat> if we wanted a big market, we had to go somewhere where there was a big market. And even those days, uh, track and field was a big thing in America. But when I started in 1968, when I first trip to America, and the family were a bit against the, the idea of spending that sort of money going all the way to America. But the government came in. The government... I saw an advert in a magazine. It was a business magazine. And they wanted us to export. They were willing to pay for a stand in Chicago, at the American NSGA show. And they were willing to pay our return airfare and half of our expenses. So I got over the problems of spending money. It was cheaper for me to go to America than stay at home. <clears throat> 1968. And good reception, but the Americans didn't like the idea of importation. Uh, shop by shop from the UK. They wanted somebody who, who was stuck in the shoes. But it was 1979 mm. before I got my distributor. But I mean, Joe, what a great answer because I've got so many questions I want to ask you as, as we're going by. I mean, I suppose two things here. One is, you know, obviously America for British companies has often been a graveyard of failure. You know, some of our most famous brands have gone to the States and and not made it. So what was the Reebok breakthrough? What, was it this sort of sense that actually you needed to get to the consumer, not the stores, do you think? Or was it or, or was it just just the look and the feel? I'm I'm sort of wondering where these kind of tipping point moments in this in this story actually came. Well, Foster's, Edward Foster's did have an arrangement with Yale University. Um, Bob Shea and Jack and uh, Frank Ryan. They were the chief head coaches. And they, they've been selling 200 pairs uh, a month to Yale, and Yale was spreading those around. But when, <clears throat> so, and I knew Frank Ryan, and, but he was getting a bit older, and I don't think he wanted to be involved with Reebok once Foster's sort of died away. Uh, but So I knew that the American market was a good market. You know, every college, every university had a coach, and a coach was a god. And you could go, you could go to university on a on a sports scholarship. So I knew there was a market of that. But from the late 60s, right up through the 70s, running became a big category in America. Everybody started running. Mm. And so the good fortune is we were there at the right time. The timing was running was really in demand. It grew Nike. You know, okay, so, 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 so the, right, the right issue, you had the right, you had the right business. But there is also something, I guess, you know, when you think about that kind of relationship with college campuses, is that I've always felt with, with Reebok is that there was an element of fun about the brand as much as fitness, wasn't there, in terms of it partially explained why it was one of those breakthrough brands that went from fitness to, you know, to general footwear in terms of people just wanting to be associated with it. Was there, was there something, do you think, that you managed to capture in terms of a spirit? Well, yes. Plus, I, I think, you know, you've got time. I mean, the, thing, the thing that happened was runner's world. Runner's World grew with the running, uh, I'm saying, when running grew in America. Runner's World came in, and from a, a small A4 one-page, we'll say, magazine, it became, by the mid-1970s, a 
full-blown, full-color, big magazine, telling everybody where the races were and whatever. So everybody who was running read mm. Runner's World. And uh, if you think there's three, well, there were in there, there were 350 million Americans, 10% say started running 35 million, and maybe 10% of those would buy what at that time was uh, Runner's World's pick for the best shoe. So 3.5 million. And that would be Nike. <clears throat> and of course, Phil Knight, he's importing shoes from Japan. He couldn't fulfill those orders. And, and so by the time the year had gone by and Bob Anderson of Runner's World said, oh, this is, this is the new number one shoe. Ah, the whole trade was sort of desperate because the shoes that were coming in were now not wanted. It was a new shoe. Right. Now, now we get that. OK, so so it becomes it becomes a choice of people that run and they're reading about it. But what gets you from there to being the choice of Princess Diana, and <clears throat> Prince Harry and Prince William, who were all famous for wearing Reebok shoes under your under your time running the brand? Well, we needed exposure. Exposure gets that. And to get to exposure, you need to have sales and volume. Runners will change from choosing which would be the first to a star rating. And so the best shoes, five stars, which meant instead of being one, there could be four or five shoes. And I knew we could build a five-star shoe. Building a number one, mm, that was like tricky because that was a matter of choice. So we built a five-star shoe, which was Aztec. When it became a five-star shoe, well, Paul Fireman, who was American, he said, I'd love to distribute your shoes, but we need a five-star. We got a five-star shoe, and that was the hook. We got the hook. In other words, we probably had about 3.5 million or 3 million Americans would love to buy that shoe. That's the hook. That, instead of us being push, push, push for the past few years, right now there was a pull. There was something that pulled us in. And we got in and fine, we're now a running shoe. But there was a guy down in Los Angeles, Arthur Martinez. And in Los Angeles, his wife, Frankie, she was going to aerobic classes and coming back and absolutely full of it. Fantastic. And I was saying, what's going on? And we said, we're aerobics. What's that? Said, well, we're exercising to music. Oh, Arnold decided he's going to have a look at this. And he went down to the next class that she went to, and there he sees the, uh, the instructor wearing a pair of what we now call sneakers, trainers. Half the class wearing sneakers, the other half of the class wearing nothing. And the big thing that came to him was not so much the fact that I can design or we can design a shoe specifically for this, but specifically for women. Mm. And it would be made to fit women on a woman's last. He went back to Paul Feynman in Boston and said, Paul, oh, this fantastic thing going on. And Paul said, whoa, 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 we're a running company. Why do we want to be making shoes for somebody dancing about down there in Los Angeles? Anyway, Arnold sort of felt a bit destroyed, but he went to the back door and he met up with Steve Liggett. Steve Liggett was our production man. He asked Steve to make him some shoes. Make me a couple of hundred pairs. They did. And that 200 pairs went down to LA. The, the women just loved it. Absolutely mm. loved them. They didn't just wear them for the aerobics. They started to wear them on the street to work and whatever. This was giving us visibility. Right. Now, it, it strikes me that what you're talking about is what I often see in, in very, very good entrepreneurs is that they, they somehow manage to see round corners, you know, that they, they capture a trend before a trend goes mainstream. And of course, they're able to build very successful solutions around it. Now, of course, you, you've, you've captured some of this story in, in, your, in your new book, Shoemaker, which, you know, I, I read as an ambition story. I mean, you know, is, is it the case that to... To do what, you know, to see round corners, to have that intuition, to have that ability, the drive you've got to have is ambition to make it happen, do you think? Well, you do need ambition, absolutely. You need that. You need uh, ingenuity. You need as much 
I don't know whether it's stupidity or what, but you need to be excited. You need that drive. You need to see and say, wow, we can do something. Just keep going. It's mm-hmm. very important. And that is your quote for life, by the way, which sounds very, very close to just do it. I, I thought, Jay, <laughs> just keep going. Just keep going. And because, you know, as I say, it took 11 years for us to break into the American market. And I had at least six failed attempts. People, we tried, the effort was, but we realized the biggest problem was who wanted Reebok? I'd, I'd, you know, I'd had that story before when I, when I was selling in the UK, I'd go around to sports shops and I'd go in and say, I'm Reebok. And say, who's Reebok? Oh, right, yes, yes. yes. And they say, well, I've, I've got Adidas and I've got Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? And that to me was the most important. Why do I need Reebok? Mm-hmm. I've got to make them want Reebok. And of course, you created this incredible rapport and connection with consumers. One element of that seemed to be that you were, there was a purpose to Reebok. That actually, I mean, you know, when you look at, you know, your, your purpose statement, which is to empower global youth to fulfill their potential, there seemed to be that there was a point in terms of actually there were things that were making you tick beyond the day job. I mean, is, is that a fair summation, do you think? Well, I've been accused on a number of times that everything I touch, I want to make global. <laughs> Even if it fails, I still want to make it global. So, so I guess that that was probably in the DNA, whether it was from my grandfather, I don't know. But it, it is a fact that, you know, if you get to a certain stage, you can go better. Mm. You can, you know, we, can, we, we can do something better than this. You know, it's like the race isn't over until you've won. But, but, it's, but it strikes me that, I mean, you know, you're, you're sitting not, not too many streets away from Marcus Rashford, who has made a, you know, he could just have rested on his laurels. He's made a major campaign for ending child food poverty. It, it, it strikes me that Reebok could have taken a, a journey where it didn't need to sort of focus on that purpose side in, in the way that it did and in many ways set an early example of what might, might be the shape of things to come today. Well, yeah, I, I think that fate is a, is a big thing, that uh, the opportunity comes and it takes you. It's like trying to do a business plan. Yeah, I would try and do a business plan and I think we'd go somewhere. But then an opportunity comes up, which is different. And you tend to move towards the opportunity. This this is like climbing the mountain. It's not a straight road. You've got to go left and right. You've got to take take the opportunities to go forward and keep going. And I think that's that's what happened, certainly with Reebok. And I think with a business, it's it, it sees new doors open. Written the book, Shoemaker. And it's amazing. How many different doors are now opening like this? And, and I think this is coincidence with COVID. COVID has brought people to the computers. And the computers, we now have Zoom, we have podcasts, and we, we have all these things. I never had that in the early days, but now it's here. And so, it's a phenom- yeah. phenomenal way of, of, of actually keeping conversations going and connecting. But the thing I'm thinking about is what you just said there a minute ago, when you said that, you know, people would say, oh, your biggest problem is you want to turn everything global. And, and I suppose on, on one level, it's it's been just such a part of your story, Joe, it's, it's to turn, you know, a family business into a global phenomena. But of course, there is a flip side to this. When you look at the ubiquity of, of foot shoes around the world now in terms of, you know, issues like modern slavery, ethics that we read about, how comfortable do you feel now that this is a truly global business that where there are some big challenges with it in terms of, I guess, the ethics and, and, and future behaviours going forward? I, I think this, this is what happens in life. Life changes, life moves on. Maybe those people, they, they call it slave trade or they, you're using people. And, I, and I've been over there and seen some of this, which, which is not good. But if we hadn't been there, have they got a job at all? 
You know, how we now start in something which helps them, and they become visible. And once they become visible, it becomes a problem. So we then start to answer the problem. And Reebok have a foundation. They now work on this as well as they can do. And so it is putting money back in. Right now we have diversity. We have all sorts of elements that come into running a business. Mm. And, and, you, and you've got to take this in because it's part of your creed. It's something you, you, that must happen. Do, do you think the conditions for, for entrepreneurs now, for you know, for, for doing the sorts of things that, that, that you did in terms of getting started, getting going, building something special, are the conditions a lot better, do you think, for doing that when you were getting going? In certain aspects, yes. I mean, maybe there's uh, there's more competition now, but also there's more opportunity now. And you can turn, you know, we were at London Business School last week and uh, a Q&A just like this. And Jeff, who was asking the question, said, you know, you're breaking all the rules. This is not how we do it now. <laughs> you're breaking the rule. I said, well, you know. Sorry. It doesn't sound me you're a good rule follower, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> no. We got my instinct, and you know, people have an instinct like they have in many ways. And we had an instinct that said, This is where we go, this is, mm. this is what we do. And you know, people, you meet people, it's very important to get the right people, make a, a friend of them. I was reading um, something that Martin Sorrell, the, the advertising entrepreneur, said the other day about the sorts of businesses that he looks to buy. And he said, we're, you know, we're looking for people to buy in, not sell up. Well, obviously, you did sell Reebok eventually. How did that feel and how did it work out for you as an entrepreneur to get to the exit part and then find their own life after exit? Well, a lot of businesses these days, and again, we talk to the people that business, and most uh, entrepreneurs are coming with an exit policy. You know, they, they have the exit there. It's already part of the plan. Uh, we never had that, an exit plan. It was always continue keeping. And the, the thing was that until maybe 12 months, maybe a little longer, nobody knew Joe Foster. Nobody knew he was the founder of Reebok with his brother. Because to me, that wasn't important. To me, we had a name, Reebok. We had a company. And that really is something that we needed to... That, that was our life. And it was Reebok, not Joe Foster. So, and, and when it came to the fact that we needed the money and I, I, I needed the brand to grow, it needed the money. It needed all these things. And selling the brand or allowing somebody else into that brand, to me, wasn't a problem. Because, mm. you know, a CEO comes and goes. Maybe an owner comes and goes. But a founder, a founder stays around forever. But you talked about Adidas from the point of view of, you know, almost sucking the oxygen out of the brand. That, that was a phrase that, that you, you use, is, you know, when two people are in a room, the bigger one takes all, all the oxygen. I mean, how did that feel to watch your, I guess, your baby, you know, this, this business that you had grown? I mean, had, at that point, had you successfully cut the cord or, or did, it, did it bother you? Well, it does bother me, of course. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's the brand. You can't get into anything else. It's the brand that, uh, you know, with my brother, you know, we invented, created or whatever. And so you, you, you never leave it. It's, uh, but I retired from day to day at the end of 1989. It wasn't sold to Adidas until 2005. But uh, I think the problem was at that time, Paul Feynman took over. I mean, he was doing a brilliant job, you know, he really did a brilliant job of creating that market in America. I put the rest of the world on. After getting Paul, I, I was then traveling the world till 1989. And by that time, we had so many accountants, so many lawyers, so many people that the challenge was no longer there for me. So mm. since the challenge had gone, it was easier just to step back. 
and say, well, that's it. I mean, I've never really stepped away from it. I mean, you, you probably heard, I always refer to this a bit like the Eagles and Hotel oh, California. Hotel California. Yeah. <laughs> you can check out, but you can never leave. I mean, we're almost out of time. And I'm, I'm just thinking as we're speaking is that, you know, there's an often said thing that you can't build it big in Britain, that we can't build world beaters like America builds them. And, you know, you are in many respects the, I guess, one of those British companies that can say, well, hold on, we did it. You know, we did create a truly global brand that was, you know, sought after by customers in every country all around the world. When you look at that story, I, I was really interested that your tip for life was to trust your gut instincts. And I'm I'm wondering, just in terms of gut instinct and going global, what advice would you give to people that are sat here listening as, as maybe entrepreneurial business builders that are thinking, you know what, we want to be the next Reebok. How do you trust your gut to do that? Well, I think it's, it's a matter of the, you know, how you're created, your DNA maybe. You're, you're going to be the one that is an optimist. You know, your glass is always half full. It's, it's going to be the fact that it, it's there for you to take a hold of. So it's, positive mindset. Yes, a positive mindset. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's like you know, positive thinking. It is very genuinely a belief, you know, the power of positive thinking really does take you forward <clears throat> because, you know, the, the setbacks you get, the change of our name, we got a better name. And you know, we don't want four years into the business. Adidas, the lawyers, wrote a letter because we, we had as our silhouette two stripes and a T-bar. And they thought that uh, was a conflict with the three stripes. So they told us to stop. And for five minutes, we're looking at this letter and thinking, oh, my goodness. Then we're smiling. And we're saying, just a minute. Adidas know we're here. You know, we're a small company, but Adidas written us a letter. So that was pinned on the wall for a long time. And what did we do? We changed it to the, uh, to the vector, which, again, was a better silhouette. <clears throat> Gave us more, more to look at. And so be the improver. Yes, this is always the improver. And even the, the, the little window we put Reebok behind. And you know, the story's in the book. Sebastian Coe, he's sort of sponsored a bit by Saab. Saab asked me to make him a shoe, and I'm saying, no, he's Nike. You can't make him a shoe. He's Nike. He said, well, can you put, Re can you put Saab on? And he gave me some, some clothing labels. And I said, okay, I'll see what I can do. And the only way I could get this on was to actually cut a, a window into our side and sew it behind. And I thought, oh, that looks pretty good. Why don't we put Reebok in there? Mm. And we did put Reebok in. And our... Our logo was a star. It's the star crest. And when I'm over with Paul Fireman and we have this and the star crest is in the window with Reebok, and Paul said to me, why can't we use the Union Jack? And I said, oh, Paul, we can use the Union Jack. That's going to give me a lot of trouble in the UK. And it did. It did. The unions were wild. But we put the Union Jack in. And Paul Fireman said, because everybody in America knows the union jack so flair as well mattered yeah i mean jay we're, we're fast running out of time I'm, I'm i could go on i could really really go on I'm, i was just to bring it right the way back so back to that american webster's dictionary i remember when i was 13 my, my sister was a great tennis player and my dad gave my sister a, a prince tennis racket and he gave me a sports bag. And when I opened the sports bag, it was full of books. And at the time, I remember it was like the, the case book of Sherlock Holmes. And I always remember at the time thinking, what an insult. Why can't I have the flashy tennis racket? Turned out the book set alight a lifetime love of reading, right. which, you know, turned out to be a major 
part of, I guess, of what fuels my day to day. So I really do empathize with the fact of I can see you on that prize rostrum being being handed your dictionary and thinking, what's this for? Well, what was it for? It was for Reebok. It was for Reebok, indeed, yes. <clears throat> well before the time, well before his day, but there he was, yes, amazing. Fantastic. Joe Foster, thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. It's been an absolute pleasure. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? 